our Bible to uh, Edge chapter 5, um, verse 17 to 20, uh, 32. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple court, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple court as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple court, teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and we are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter on the other and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Then the God of our ancestor raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. We are looking at the first part of Daniel which we've entitled Against the Tide, and today we want to look at chapter 3 in particular. But as we begin, could I just invite everyone who's easily able to, please take a stand. Stand up. All right. And now I would like all of you to bow down and worship me. No one's bowing. What's going on? Well, that's exactly how our passage begins as well, and we want to see why you didn't obey, uh, but why many people in, act, or in the uh, book of Daniel chapter 3 did obey. Uh, just for those who are uh, joining us in the online, 
Um, please be aware, no one actually bowed down and worshiped me, and no one ever has, and I hope no one ever will. Please go ahead and be seated. I've entitled this passage, When the State Becomes God. When the State Becomes God. I am very glad none of you bowed down to worship. And yet, in this passage, we see Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, demanding exactly that of all of his subjects. Bow down and worship this great statue, this great image made of gold, which is representative of me. And we remember from chapter 2 last week that he had received a vision from God that Daniel was able to eventually interpret for him in which there was a statue. And Nebuchadnezzar was represented by the head of gold, but the rest of the statue was made of other materials which were of less value and cost than gold. But it seems that Nebuchadnezzar now, in chapter 3, after receiving that vision and hearing, essentially, you're the greatest of all these great empires that will come after you, he's not satisfied with it. Rather, now, he wants to do a bit of what we might call wish fulfillment. He creates his own statue, his own colossus, bigger-than-life statue of himself, made out of gold, and he wants other people to worship it as if to say to God, no, I do not accept your vision. My kingdom will last. I will remain. I am the greatest. I am the most powerful. And in this way, he defies God and says, in effect, I will not allow the God of Daniel to put my kingdom aside. My rule will endure. I am the greatest, or I am of ultimate value. But there are three men, we're going to find out, who disagreed with that self-assessment by Nebuchadnezzar. And they refused to bend or bow before this idol. And what we will learn is that Christians, those who follow God today, just like those three men followed God back then, Christians must refuse to bend or bow to the idols of our own age. Let's pick it up in verses 1 to 6, where we see the command of state religion. He says this, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, now, whether or not that was pure gold or is hollowed out on the inside or just plated in gold, it's really irrelevant. But either way, there was clearly a lot of gold that must have looked really good when the sun glinted off of it. Sixty cubits high and six cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, and magistrates of all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. By the way, we'll find out that Daniel is not here. We're not sure why Daniel doesn't show up. Perhaps he had business somewhere else, uh, but he's clearly not involved in this particular instance. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, basically an uh, orchestra from that time period, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. If you read history, you'll become all too familiar with this theme. The state, the government, often tries to take to itself authority that is not rightly theirs. They will often try to harness religion or philosophy in order to do this, to get more power for the government and the governing officials. It's not new. It's happening all over the world today. It happens in our own country all the time. 
And here, Nebuchadnezzar builds this colossus. A colossus is a larger-than-life statue. And some skeptics argue against this chapter and really the whole book of Daniel because of this chapter, saying, this is absurd. This is fanciful. It cannot be true. No one would really believe that someone would do this or that such a sort of statue would exist in the ancient world in the way it's described here. And yet, we find in history, through many archaeological discoveries, that the Greeks were quite fond uh, about the same time period in the ancient world. They were quite fond of building their own statues or colossi, among which was the Colossus of Rhodes, which actually straddled the harbor and was considered one of the greatest of uh, the ancient statues and also one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It later fell due to an earthquake. Or we read uh, just shortly after Jesus' time, after his death and resurrection in the New Testament, Nero, the emperor of Rome, who was a very conceited and arrogant individual like Nebuchadnezzar, he uh, determined to build a colossus for himself. And Hadrian, the later emperor, had to use 24 elephants in order to cart that thing away and do away with it. So this was not unknown in the ancient world. It's actually quite well known through archaeology. There are good reasons to understand this as history, as it's presented. And to give a bit of perspective, just to put this, uh, this particular statue in perspective, it would have been about two-thirds the size of the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor, minus the pedestal that the Statue of Liberty is on, about two-thirds the size of that. So quite large and at least plated in gold. But what is Nebuchadnezzar doing by erecting this statue and having people fall down and worship it? Well, he's doing what he was doing in chapter 1. He's relativizing the absolute and absolutizing the relative. Now, I know that's, those are all big words and a big, big mouthful, but let me just kind of review for us what that means. In the first chapter of Daniel's book, we observe that Nebuchadnezzar treated the temple vessels in Jerusalem with contempt. Although they were supposed to be representative of the absolute power, and the person of God, the God that the Hebrews worshipped, the God of the whole world, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians saw them as something with only relative value. He was guilty, in that instance, chapter 1, of relativizing what was absolute. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is shown by God in a vision that there is no state or political system that God assesses as having absolute value. The only kingdom which will last is the kingdom of God, represented by the stone. That is, God is the only one of absolute value. Yet now in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar defies this notion. How? By attempting to make his empire absolute, represented by the statue. He insists on being treated like a god who must be worshipped. Ah, but there happened to be three men in his kingdom... And it was immediately obvious to these men that this was probably the greatest test of loyalty to the one true God they had faced up to this point in their life. And they realized this was a question of ultimate value. This was an ultimate value decision. They placed their ultimate value in God. Nebuchadnezzar placed it in himself and wanted everyone else to see him as of ultimate value as well. And here Nebuchadnezzar, what he's doing is he's absolutizing the relative. He's saying, I am the most important. You must agree with me or else. What a muddle we get into when we seek to follow our own wisdom, our own arrogance as supreme, instead of listening to and submitting to God. In our own day, there's still this drive to take something, uh, many things of relative value and make them absolute. 
Governments love to do this with themselves. Power, authority, money, sex. These are all common culprits in this cause. Taking these things, elevating them to supreme value, and then bowing before them by orchestrating our life around these things. And so what Nebuchadnezzar was doing about 2,500 years ago in this passage with an actual physical statue, we still do the same today, although we typically don't do it with a physical statue. We do it with one of these ideas or concepts or things like money, sex, power, authority, and prestige. And consider the setup here. Although these two items I'm about to name are not the main point of the passage, they are helpful for us to consider and to notice in passing. Two important lessons here. First of all, the lesson of where the balance of power in government comes from. Did you notice in that list of individuals who were all called together to worship this this, uh, colossus by Nebuchadnezzar, did you notice that one of those groups was the judges, the judiciary branch of the government? Now, one of the most important safeguards of modern society in certain countries today is the idea that there should be different branches of government, judiciary and, and executive branches, for instance, and that they should be separate. You shouldn't have a king or a potentate or a totalitarian dictator telling the judges what they should and shouldn't do. That's a sort of banana republic. It's a totalitarian state. There's no true freedom and no true rule of law in such a country. And some of us take that for granted today, especially if we've grown up in a country with those checks and balances. And yet, it's important to remember that is a very modern phenomenon. First of all, the concept of checks and balances in government is a biblical concept. It comes straight from the Bible, and you can find it nowhere else in any other major world religion or philosophy. It comes directly from God's word. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was not following God's word, and most countries today still don't follow God's word in this and many other respects. But what we take for granted, this separation of powers, has not been the norm throughout history. It wasn't the norm in Nebuchadnezzar's day, and no one would have thought twice that Nebuchadnezzar calls all the branches of government to come and do whatever he says because his word was law. That's the first passing lesson to learn. But secondly, notice the use of manipulation in order to produce an absolute obedience. It's no accident that music is involved here, as well as the threat of burning people alive in a furnace. By the way, the burning people alive in a furnace, that's quite an ugly sort of outcome, but it was part and parcel of the Code of Hammurabi, which the Babylonian Empire sought to enshrine within their laws as well. For certain offenses, burning alive was the punishment. But what was the music there to perform? It was to perform the opposite function of the threat of physical violence in the furnace. Seduction, manipulation. Music has the power to influence the mind and reduce inhibitions. Now that power is neutral. It can be used for good or it can be used for ill. How is it being used here? It's being used for ill. It can be used to attack the emotions directly and bypass the mind and the will. The 1960s generations was not the first to discover that in the sexual revolution, that if you link that with manipulative music, you can get people to do a lot of things they otherwise wouldn't do without that manipulation. In the contemporary world, music still plays this similar role. It can be used for good or bad. The throbbing beat can anesthetize people's minds and hearts to the lyrics. It can help to guide their actions and their person. And sadly, this tactic is even used by some so-called churches and professed Christians to get people to respond in a certain way. I remember hearing, this was tragic, but I heard a Christian evangelist 
so-called, um, who said this, if you will let me do this piece of music at the end of the service, I guarantee you at least 20% of the congregation will respond with some decision. What's that? That's direct manipulation of the emotions, bypassing the mind, and not dealing with truth. That's no place, that has no place in the kingdom of God or in the church. Nebuchadnezzar knew the power of music. Our secular society knows the power of music to bypass the will and get to the heart and make people do what they want. But there were three men who would not give in to this mob psychology and this musical manipulation. They saw through what was going on here. For everyone else, yes, let's just go along the, the path of least resistance pragmatically. Let's just do this. We'll keep our positions. We'll keep our money. We may know it's a complete and utter nonsense. We're going to do it anyway to preserve our own lives. And now we see the price of spiritual integrity, verses 7 to 18. We see the conflict starts to arise. We see what the conflict is. We see the apex of the conflict and its resolution. At first, everything seems to go well. Verse 7, therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of all these instruments, all the nations and the people of every language, they fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Everyone falls in in lockstep, mob psychology at its greatest. Now, perhaps due to the size of the crowd, the king himself didn't notice that there were three men who didn't bow. But, don't worry, he had some narcs, some of those who were going to come in and make sure to tell him what was going on. At this time, some of the astrologers, verse 8, and remember the astrologers are part of the wise men. Uh, it's another name for some of the wise men. They came forward, they denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of all these instruments must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. One wonders, were these the same men, the same wise men, whom Daniel with his actions in the previous chapter, had just saved. Remember, all the wise men were going to be killed, and Daniel's actions from God's direction saved their lives. If these are some of those same individuals, it would seem that their thankfulness was very short-lived, for they immediately begin attacking Daniel's three friends. And how do they attack? The first attack is this, anti-Semitism. There are some Jews, O king. What did that have to do with the situation? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. There were people, it just told us, people from every nation and tongue, all these different groups of people from all sorts of backgrounds. Why point this out? Well, it's the same anti-Semitism against the people of God that God has specifically chosen to play a unique role in history. It's not new. It's the same old thing over and over and over again. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We see it all the way up to the present day, especially over the last few weeks. There are certain Jews, O king. And then they tell a lie, followed by a truth. What's the lie? First of all, these men, O king, they pay no attention to you. Nonsense. They were excellent at their job. He had put them in their position because of their ability and at the suggestion of Daniel, whose ability and evaluation he trusted. He, remember, himself had examined Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 1, after their three years of training, he knew their abilities. He knew, they, he knew that they were ten times better than what he already had with his other officials. 
So this is utter nonsense. They did pay attention to the king. They did their jobs well, and the king knew that. But then what's the truth that they tell him? Well, they say, uh, these men are not going to serve your gods, and they won't bow down to your image. Okay, that's true. That's the first true thing they've said. Then the king, to his credit, although he does it in rage and anger, he tries to find out if this is true. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 13. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar says to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, very good. But if you don't want to worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? You see the challenge? What God is greater than I am? What God can do more than I can do? It was Nebuchadnezzar's power that the three men had challenged. And he was giving them another chance to acknowledge his power had no limit. How did he give them that, this other chance? In one sense, this was very gracious, no doubt. He probably didn't want to lose these three individuals. So he gives them this chance, but only upon threat of death. Do it or else. And here we see an important contrast. In Christianity, Christians understand when they read their Bible that it's impossible to force someone to become a Christian. That would be the most foolish thing in the world for a Christian to try to do. And actually, just from a sense of logical argument, if you have to force someone with a fiery furnace or a sword or a gun to convert to your religion in order for them to convert, then it means you cannot persuade them of the truth of your religion or your philosophy. So you throw out persuasion and just threaten them. That's what he's doing here. There's no logic here. There's no consistency to his belief system. There's no consistency to what he's pushing all of his people to do. So he has to threaten and cajole and manipulate them into submission. But the way of Christ is completely different. It persuades. It engages. It considers the truth. And it never threatens violence. But the men refused, verses 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him. King Nebuchadnezzar, notice they are respectful. They give him respect and honor, even though they're not going to obey this, because as we just saw in the book of Acts, chapter 5 in our Bible reading this morning, we ought to obey God rather than men. And they understood that principle, even though those specific words had not been uttered by the apostle Peter for some 500 years hence. But they say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They're very firm, respectful, but firm. We're going to obey God, and you are not him. Nebuchadnezzar had never in his life, we might suspect, encountered such studied defiance. It is as if, as they refuse to bow, we can almost kind of picture him sputtering, but, 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 but you can't do that to me. This is the sort of arrogance and rage this man is showing. Of course, he could kill them, but that really wasn't the point. He realized what he couldn't force them to do was the one thing he wanted to force everyone to do, to bow down and acknowledge him as supreme. His whole scheme up to this point hinged on the assumption that each and every person in his kingdom 
including all his officials, would consider their life of absolute value. And now he is incensed and enraged because he meets three men who seem to value something more than their lives, the one true God and the worship exclusive to him. And he doesn't know what to do with himself. And then we progress and we see the salvation of God in the fire in verses 19 to 30. Beginning in verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar, he's furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, that's important later on, that's why it's giving us this detail, they were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just pause there for a moment. When acting out of rage, rarely do good things happen. He just killed some of his best soldiers because he acted out of rage and anger and out of emotion, rather from a principled place, a balanced place of truth. Oh, what trouble we get ourselves into when we act out of emotion, especially out of anger. That's a challenge for all of us, isn't it? And these three men, firmly tied, they fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaps to his feet in amazement and asks his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. What an interesting phrase. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Who's this fourth man in the fire? Nebuchadnezzar terms him the son of the gods. There was something different about this being although he appeared seemingly in a human sort of shape, something to Nebuchadnezzar uh, made him think, wait, this, this is not a normal human being. And we're told it's an angel, verse 28. And later on in Daniel chapter 6, verse 22, we, we hear of another angel. Now, that's all we're told. Angel means uh, essentially heavenly messenger from God. But in the Old Testament, you can have a sort of generic angel, if you will, a uh, generic angel messenger from God being sent who can appear in a human form. That happens multiple times in the Old Testament when God desires it to happen. But there's also a figure known as the angel of the Lord. This seems to be something quite different than just a sort of regular angel, as important as they are. Now, the angel of the Lord, depending on how you read certain texts, can either be God's a very specific angel that God sends, or it could be a pre-incarnate uh, sighting of Jesus Christ in human form. Um, scholars differ, and there's not enough evidence one way or the other sometimes to understand it. So in this particular passage, the question is, is this just an angel, or is it something more than an angel? Could this be Jesus in the Old Testament? Not quite sure. I tend to think the latter for a couple reasons, but the, the text isn't clear, um, so we can't be too dogmatic on that. But whatever, or pardon me, whomever this individual was, Clearly, Nebuchadnezzar could see that there was something different about this individual, if for no other reason than the fact that they just appear in the fire and don't seem to be hurt by it. Remember that Nebuchadnezzar had issued a challenge to heaven. 
What God shall deliver you out of my hand? But his astonishment and probably his horror, the God of heaven responded. And to the God of heaven, Nebuchadnezzar's threats, they meant nothing. And once again, God is invading Nebuchadnezzar's world, and he's demanding this emperor's attention. Now, God could have simply rescued these three individuals without some fourth figure in the fire. But this was a clear sign to Nebuchadnezzar that God had heard what he said, he heard his challenge, and he chose to intervene in this situation. Remember the words of Jesus later in the New Testament. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Eternally. Now those words on the timeline of history had not yet been uttered by Jesus. And yet, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had read enough of their Old Testament to know its truth. It's natural for us to fear those who can harm us, persecute us, harm our bodies, kill us. And governments have used that, those threats to great effect throughout history. But far more to be feared is the God who made us and who has complete power and control over our bodies and souls eternally. And if you are right with that God, then you don't have to fear anyone, no matter what threats they make against your body, because you know that the worst they can do is kill you. That's the absolute worst they can do. But after that, if you know God as your personal Lord and Savior, he will take care of you, body and soul, eternally. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors, they all crowd around them, as you and I might as well, and they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their head singed, their robes, remember it gave us those details about what they were wearing, their robes were not scorched, there wasn't even any smell of fire on them. This is clearly a supernatural event. And Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 28, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promote, promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was a man of impulsive and volatile extremes. He just went from threatening and trying to kill them to now promoting them within the course of a few moments. You know, today the world continues to erect its golden images, and it still heats up a furnace to intimidate those who refuse to bow down to those images and idols. Public opinion, polled majorities, Vocal minorities, money, fame, all of these and many more are used to put pressure on God's people, seeking to make them conform to the sinful actions of this world. But God doesn't wish his people to buckle under those pressures. When faced with the fiery furnaces of criticism, ostracism, deprivation, and potentially death, God wants his people to stand strong. And these three men did. Now, what lessons can we learn from this? Well, first of all, some lessons on persecution. The three men did not know if God would save them or if they'd die in the furnace. We see that in their response. He's able to save us, but they didn't presume that he would. 
said he's able to, but if he chooses not to, we're still not going to bow down to you because it's the wrong thing to do. Now, God chose to save them in this instance, and he's chosen to save many of his people throughout history. But such salvation is never guaranteed. God has also allowed many of his followers to suffer that persecution or to be killed in the name of Christ. What is always guaranteed is this, a wonderful promise from Isaiah 43, verses 2 and 3, although it's repeated throughout Scripture. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you go through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. What God promises is this for his people, and only for his people, is no matter what you face, what trial, temptation, persecution, even leading to death, for his cause, for his sake, he will be with you every step of the way. He promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. What a wonderful promise. So sometimes he may take away that persecution. He may take away the issue. Sometimes he may leave it there for his own good purposes, for your good and his glory, and he'll teach you something in the midst of it. And no matter how hard it gets, he will hold your hand the whole way. Sometimes even through and including the last river of death. That's what God promises to his people in their struggles to be with them. What a comfort. But we also see a few lessons we can learn from these men. Three characteristics that these men show that are exemplified by true followers of God all the way up to the present day. What are these three characteristics? First of all, they believed, they understood and believed the sovereignty of God, the theme of Daniel's book. They understood and firmly believed the reality that God is in absolute control. Not partial control, but absolute control. You see that in their response to the king. They can stand with shoulders back and say, King, we don't know what our God's going to do, but we're going to do the right thing by him, and we'll trust him for the results. Because whether we die or whether we live, we're not worshiping you because you're not God. They were able to boldly stand because they understood and believe the sovereignty of God. Secondly, they also knew the scriptures. This is the reason they refused to bow down. They knew their Old Testament scriptures would say, do not have any other gods except me. Do not worship anything except me. God had forbidden it, and so they said no. But knowing the scriptures is also important for this reason, because moral ethical issues in our society rarely come in black and white. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's usually very convoluted in our world, especially when a secular society wants God's people to swallow something hook, line, and sinker. But if you know God's word, God's word has the ability to cut through all that ambiguity and get right to the heart of the matter. And that's what we see in these men. They believed in the sovereignty of God, they knew the scriptures, and then they were willing to stand for their convictions. I'm sure you can see why that third one is so important, because you can know the sovereignty of God is true. You can know the Bible in your head, but then refuse to follow what it says, right? If God requires something of you in his word, but you choose not to obey it because you don't want to pay the price, then you're not going to be able to stand. But Jesus himself told his followers in Matthew 10, we should expect opposition in some way, shape, or form. You should expect rejection. You should expect trials. You should expect persecution and possibly even the threat of death. There's nothing new in that. And whenever you're pressured to do something that you know by the teaching of the Bible to be wrong, your situation is very similar to that of these young men, and your responsibility before God is the same as theirs. You must do what's right. You must obey God rather than men. 
You must not bow down to the world's demands, even if the consequences are costly. It's a reality in our society today, a society that's becoming far more secular and prone to despise God and his word and his people. It's becoming increasingly popular in our society to put these roadblocks, so to speak, in the way of Christians. How are we to respond? And what this passage shows us is that we need to be ready for opposition. Now, this is true in every age, but we shouldn't be naive in our current setting. Increasingly, our society and many societies around the world that once had significant religious freedom are now turning at least somewhat on that. You can have religious freedom as long as you only talk about it on Sunday mornings and as long as you do whatever the government says and as long as you follow the party line and as long as you do political correctness and as long as you don't say certain things on Twitter. And as that's not religious freedom. But that's where we're at in our society. And barring a revival, God's spirit working and moving in people's hearts and lives, which, by the way, I hope you're praying for, we need to see God's spirit move in this country and bring many people to repentance and faith. But barring that, it seems pretty clear where the Western world is currently headed. And so what that means is that some of you are likely going to face some of these and many other situations. Some of you are going to fail to be promoted in your job because you stand for what's right. You won't do something immoral or unethical, and your boss may not like that. Some of you, very possibly in the next few years, might be fired from your job because you will not bow to the idols of sexual immorality, sexual identity politics, or practice and participate in Gay Pride Month, which is, which is celebrating, of course, that which God condemns. Nor should you bow to such an idol that makes our own personal view of our sexuality the main God in our life. Some of you are going to be misunderstood for not falling in line with certain government pushes or political correctness, such as accepting elements of aboriginal paganism at various events, or refusing, if you are a government official, to practice ungodly smoking ceremonies at government events as well. Some of you are going to be discouraged or pressured by family members because you follow the way of Christ. And you refuse to bow down to the idol of materialism and money that they do. Your friends and your family are likely not going to understand that you don't find your security in your investment properties, in your share account, or in your bank accounts. And that's going to cause some turmoil if it hasn't already. And yet, what are you supposed to do in all these situations and many others that we could mention? What you must resolve to do now is this. By God's grace and guided by God's unchanging word, you need to declare in your own heart and mind, I will not bend or bow to these idols. I will worship God alone. And as you make that solemn commitment and as you act in that way, you can remember the wonderful truths of Scripture, the promises of God's word, which will give you aid and will give you help and encouragement in those times. Such promises as are mentioned in a wonderful Christian hymn that says this, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, my only design, thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. God says what the world around us, what Nebuchadnezzar wants to use to kill you, 
God will use for your good and his glory, and he'll be with you every step of the way. That's a wonderful promise based on passage after passage, verse after verse of scripture. We have nothing to fear, although doubtless we will probably fear, we will probably feel fear in those moments. But we have nothing ultimately to fear because we know the one and we worship the one who is in control of both our bodies and our souls eternally. God does accompany his people through their trials. That's guaranteed. The Bible is clear on this point, and countless believers throughout history have testified to it through their own experience. So we can be confident in the promises of God that his presence will be with us. And subsequently, we can stand. So let us stand for what is right. Let us refuse to compromise. Let us stand with unbowed heads and with rigid backbones, something that's far too uncommon in our current society, before the golden statues of our society and the idols of our culture. Let us refuse to bend or bow before them, understanding that God is the only one who is ultimate in value and the only one who deserves my ultimate and absolute allegiance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of these young men, but help us not to think that their situation is radically different to our own. There are always forces in this world who seek to work against your people. I pray for those who are here, who know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that they would be absolutely convinced of your sovereignty and who you are in your character. From a deep study of your word, knowing your promises, knowing your truth, and that they will be committed to stand, no matter what happens. That they will find their absolute fulfillment and value and identity in you and you alone, and refuse to bend or bow to the idols of this age. We ask these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.